Listen to the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I might myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth 
fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So reads the Word of God. Let's now look into it together and begin to understand how it is that God accomplishes his salvation. This morning we enter a passage, as you just heard, that's not just the most controversial section of Paul's letter to Rome, but ranks high among the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. Romans 9 presents the clearest teaching on the doctrine of election. That's what it's called in verse 11 this morning. The doctrine of election that appears in Scripture. There are many other texts, many other issues that resonate fully with what Paul is explaining here. But this is the text that builds the the clearest foundation for this, this challenging teaching. This teaching that we here at Grace Church of DuPage embrace with our whole heart as descriptive of the nature of God and of the way of his salvation. Paul is launching off here into an extended explanation of God's relationship with his older covenant people, Israel. And he's doing so given the grand assurances that he's just offered to his new covenant people, the church, especially here in Romans 8, but really Romans 5 through 8 spotlighting the the blessings that are ours because of the saving grace of God. So this section of Romans is intended to explain to the new covenant people why it is that they can trust God's promises as faithful if they look at Israel and see that, wow, it doesn't look like he's kept his promises there. If his new covenant people are going to place their confidence in the assurances that were just offered in Romans 8, They're going to need to hear what has become of similar promises made to the older covenant people, which appear not to have been kept. So it's essential for Paul to offer this explanation here. Now, as he does so, we can see that this passage also makes essential contributions to other vastly important biblical theological discussions like the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity that we just mentioned, but also the relationship between Israel and the church. This is one of the most helpful passages to understand that. And that is an important topic to grasp in order to read our Bibles with good understanding. How do his old covenant people and his new covenant people relate to one another? What's the connection between them? This passage also gives us helpful input on ethnic Israel's present and future place in God's salvation plan. It's one of the key passages that you look at on that subject. And there are also several others up to even so great a subject as God's purpose in creating the world. This is one of the key contributing texts toward understanding the heart of God, the nature of God, to know why he created in the first place. So it's a rich text of Scripture, and we could look at it from many angles. We could study it looking in many directions, but we need to keep our eye on the ball this morning 
knowing that the great number of subjects this passage could be used to address, we need to make sure that we hear first what Paul intended the Romans to hear and what he intended his readers through the generations of the church to hear primarily from this text in the context in which it appears in the book of Romans, the letter of Romans. We need to hear this passage in context with the rest of what he's saying here regarding the church and their understanding of the gospel. Toward that end, I believe Tom Schreiner has done a great job in his commentary of summarizing what we've heard so far in the book of Romans, especially over the last four chapters, chapters 5 through 8, but even more so especially in chapter 8 itself. And it's really important to hear this in order to appreciate what it is that Paul is doing here now as Romans 9 through 11 begins. We see that he really did need to pick up this subject next of Israel's place in God's salvation plan and of the status of God's relationship with Israel and of his promises to them. Schreiner lists many of the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament. And then he shows how here in Romans, those very promises are now made to the church. It's a confusing correlation. Jews and Gentiles together who've trusted in Christ as Savior as Lord seem to hear the same promises that Old Testament Israel heard. Schreiner puts this together very well. Just listen. This is an extended quote, but it walks through, through some of those promises and then attaches them to Romans 8 especially, but Romans 5 through 8 more broadly. So just follow me. If you're taking notes, put your pen down now. This, this quote will be present on the, the notes that are on the website so you can look back at it and get a handle on it. But just listen to what he says. One of the striking themes in Romans 8 is that the blessings originally promised to Israel have become the province of the church. Schreiner continues, Israel was promised the Holy Spirit. Exodus 36, so that they could keep the law. But this promise has come to fruition in the church through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 4. Israel had the pledge of a future resurrection, Ezekiel 37. And yet, Paul speaks of the resurrection of believers, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 8. Israel was God's son uniquely, Exodus 4. But now believers in Christ are sons and daughters of God, adopted as his own. And by the way, stepping out of this quote for a moment, this word adoption will be actually used of Israel, as we will see. There's an old covenant sense of adoption as the unique son of God, Israel, and a new covenant adoption that happens in Christ by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that stuff as we move through this. Continue on with the quote now. The future inheritance was promised to Israel, Isaiah 60, but now it's pledged to the church, Romans 8, 17. Israel was God's chosen people and the only one foreknown among the nations, Amos 3 and many other passages. And yet now the church is said to be foreknown and chosen by God, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Yahweh had promised never to forsake Israel, Deuteronomy 31. Yet now this promise is extended to the church. With the application of so many Old Testament promises to the church in chapters 5 through 8, the relationship of Israel to God's saving plan cries out for resolution 
And Paul turns to that question next. End quote. Helpful summary, wouldn't you agree? So let's look into this text together and see where it goes. If we were dividing up Romans 9 according to the clearest transitions in the text for for preaching segments, we'd probably handle verses 1 through 5 first as the introduction. Then we'd look at the first half of verse 6 as the thesis statement that is over the whole of Romans 9 through 11. So you want to know what this is about? It's what we read in Romans 6a. The word of God has not failed. And then Paul continues over these three chapters to explain why. So we look first at verses 1 through 5, then verse 6 as the thesis statement. And then from the second half of verse 6 through verse 29 that we just read as Paul's opening defense of his thesis statement. It really hangs together as one piece, verses 6 to 29. But given the time that it's going to take to handle each of these sections well, we're going to divide it differently. We're We're handling the introduction, verses 1 to 5, the thesis statement in verse 6, and then the first half of his defense up through verse 13 this morning, and then, God willing, we'll handle the second half of his defense in verses 14 to 29 next Sunday. Now, that's easy enough to understand in terms of just the breakdown of the text, but the hardest part of this approach of dividing that that defense in the middle after verse 13 is that... Paul makes a particularly unpleasant statement. There's, a, there's an unpleasant aspect of his defense right in the middle of his defense, namely in verse 13. So that will be our closing verse to today, but we'll try to put some context around that statement so that the negative aspects of it won't be our takeaway that lingers with us in our minds and hearts into the week ahead. We'll try to put that in a context where we really appreciate what's being said there. So there's our, there's our aim for today. There's our, our, our roadmap, our plan. Let's jump into the text now and uh, do so according to the three parts that are listed there in your bulletin. Those are the, that's the outline we're going to use. So we'll look first at Paul gets us ready to hear his point. You see verses 1 through 5. There's the introduction. Then Paul states and explains his point. We've got the thesis statement in verse 6 and then a brief explanation up through verse 8. And then that does seem to take a turn then, beginning in verse 9, just a bit, even though it's of one piece, as we said. So Paul begins to defend his point in verses 9 through 13. We'll stop there, and then God willing, finish this section next Sunday. So let's look into the text together. First, Paul gets us ready to hear his point. Let's look at his introduction. He opens here in verse 1 with an, an unprecedentedly strong affirmation. We don't see Paul affirming anything this strongly anywhere else in any of his letters. So something's following here that's really important, and he's making sure that you know, that we know as his readers, that he's speaking truthfully to us in this statement. Look at verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. So he's speaking the truth. Anybody can speak the truth. He's speaking the truth in Christ. He's speaking the, one, the truth as one who is united with Christ. So he's been raised with Christ. He's also considering Christ as his witness as he makes this statement. That's pretty strong opening. But then he turns it around and states it in the negative. I am not lying. And then comes the affirmation of inner integrity, enabled by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. An amazingly strong affirmation. So what is it that Paul wants us to hear this affirmation in relation to? What is all this assurance of truthfulness undergirding? Paul wants his readers to know one thing. Look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. That is, damned to judgment. Anathematized. There's the word. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We're hearing Paul's heart for the Jews here. For his own people, according to the flesh. But for his own people who whose biblical and theological identity is of massive importance. And so we hear him getting started on this subject of what is the status of God's relationship with the Jews? And we hear from the beginning Paul's own heart for them. He'd be willing to suffer in hell for all eternity if he thought that would mean salvation for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Three things are important to mention here. And you're going to hear, we're moving quickly through this text today. So I'll clip along in these observations, all right? Three things are important to mention here. First, many could have doubted Paul's love for the Jews, not just because he takes uh, the gospel to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. But because he's continually explaining how all believers are free from the law. We've heard that all along up through Romans up until now. Salvation isn't by the law. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the law shows us our need for a Savior. But now we're free from the law in Christ. But the law was interwoven with Jewish identity. So many could have doubted Paul's love for the Jews. And so he states it so strongly here. His love and devotion to his kinsmen. Second thing that we should note. The way Paul states himself in verse 3 suggests that this is more of a hypothetical than something he's actually doing. So he's not telling you, I am praying that I could be anathematized for the sake of the Jews, that they might come to saving faith in Christ. It's more like he's saying, I would make this my prayer were it permissible for me so to pray, and if the fulfillment of such a prayer could actually benefit the Jews. There I'm quoting Cranfield. He's given a summary of what Paul is saying. I would make this my prayer were it permissible for me so to pray. And if the fulfillment of such a prayer could actually benefit the Jews. In other words, Paul knows he can't die for the Jews. He also knows, by the way, he doesn't need to. Christ has already done that. But he would be willing to do so. There's an expression of his love. He would be willing to go that far if it would make a difference. So really that statement is more of a hypothetical. And it's helpful to know that as we move through it. It's helpful especially as we have unconverted family. Family who doesn't know the Lord, who don't know the Lord. Do we pray the same way Paul did? Uh, He's just giving us an expression of his love for his people. He's not giving us a model for what to follow when we ourselves have unconverted family. 
except insofar as our love for them runs that deep. So this statement reflects the desire of his heart more than anything else. Third, and I would say most important here, this confirms that the Jews who reject the gospel are indeed under God's condemnation. Paul's statement here wouldn't make any sense if the Jews that reject Christ weren't facing the judgment of God of an eternity in hell along with all those who reject Christ as Savior. So they stand under condemnation. We saw that back in chapter 3. Remember all of those Old Testament passages that were strung together in quotation in chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, telling us that the Old Testament has already told us about this with regard to the Jews. Not all are going to be part of the covenant community. Many will know the judgment of God because they reject relationship with God. Well, Paul's affirming that here again just by the way he's talking about his own heart in relation to them. He recognizes them as under God's condemnation. And even, uh, and this, even though they, they've been richly blessed by God, they, they're under judgment for rejecting the promised Messiah, but they are richly blessed as the Messiah was being made known. And that's where Paul goes next. He's struggling with this thought that they could have seen so much blessing from God and yet still be rejecting the salvation that he offers. Verse 4, they are Israelites. Notice now, not Jews. They are Israelites. That's, That's the people called out through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, the one who's the father of the 12 tribes. So Israel spotlights their status as God's chosen, his called out ones. And to them belong the adoption. There's that adoption word that talks about old covenant adoption. We could talk more about that. But we'll just point that out at this point. This is Israel, God's son, Exodus 4. To them belong the glory. Almost certainly this is God's presence with them, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the the presence of God hovering over the mercy seat in the tabernacle in the temple. To them belong the glory, the covenants, plural, each of those that were made with Israel. To them belongs the giving of the law. That's clear enough. They received the Ten Commandments at Sinai. To them belongs the worship, Paul says here. Likely meaning the sacrificial system that facilitated their fellowship with God. All of these are the blessings of Israel. And along with that, all the promises. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. From their race, the Messiah was given. They were chosen in order to be the ones through whom salvation would be brought into the world. Reconciliation to God through one born into a Jewish line according to the the faith. And by the way, who is Christ uh, and the Christ who is God over all. Straight up affirmation of the deity of Christ here. Blessed forever. Amen. The very reason Paul didn't need to forfeit his own life then is because Jesus had already done that. The promised Messiah had accomplished that which was needful for the salvation of the Jews. Now they just need to embrace it by faith. These are the blessings of Israel. 
Finishing that list which was begun back in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if you can remember back that far. Paul was getting started on a list and then he broke it off and started talking on a different subject. And now, really, from chapter 9, that list is filled out of all of the blessings of Israel. So what becomes of all of this once the gospel goes to the Gentiles? What's the status of all of this relationship and promise and blessing to the people of Israel? Is it all null and void? Have God's eyes turned away from Israel to the multinational church? And if their promises were nullified because of their unbelief, their disobedience, how are we supposed to trust the ones we've just heard? Because we could struggle with unbelief and disobedience as well. That's the reason Paul is writing these chapters. So let's move on into section two. This is precisely the question that Paul is addressing when he makes then his thesis statement. Having walked us through the introduction, having uh, reminded us of all that's present for Israel and thinking, okay, has God turned away from that? He makes his affirmation. Verse six, but it is not as though God's word has failed. Sometimes this is stated as a question. I think it's an affirmation. It is not as though God's word has failed. That would be our concern. Either these promises are kept or the word of God has failed. Those seem to be the only two options. And Paul is saying the word of God has not failed. So the promises are being kept. Just evidently in ways that we can't currently see or aren't currently clear. Thus, we have the Word of God as testimony on the status of His people Israel and some help in understanding how that relationship works. Where Paul begins here, though, to explain that these promises are being kept is actually quite stunning. He doesn't immediately start arguing, yeah, God is keeping His promises. He actually starts in a different place. So let's, let's walk into this. It's not as though God's word has failed, verse 6. Why? He answers it in the next phrase, the second half of verse 6, as he gets started on his defense. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's starting in the negative, not affirming God's promises. God's character is established. He'll, he'll underscore that as he moves ahead. But here, the first thing we see is that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. They're not all going to receive these blessings. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not all of the naturally born children of Abraham are included in the older covenant community. That's what Paul is saying here. The promises haven't been given indiscriminately to all ethnic Jews. They are given to those who receive them by faith and respond to them with obedience. We could say, but that's not what's being talked about here. Paul is actually making a different point, but there's the dividing line. Paul is telling us, though, that the promises haven't been given indiscriminately to all those who were born into the Jewish line. And Paul goes on to prove his point, quoting, first of all, the words of God himself from Genesis 
21, just a few verses after the passage that we read this morning as part of our scripture reading. God himself said to Abraham, verse 7 here, through Isaac, meaning not Ishmael, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. The blessing of Abraham, the blessing of the, the being in the line of the coming Messiah goes through Isaac, the son of the promise, not through Ishmael, son of human effort. You don't inherit salvation just by being a physical descendant of Abraham. That's the argument Paul is making. So, most simply put, even ethnic Jews need to trust in God's promises and obey Him as Lord in order to escape His judgment. Then Paul begins to defend this point. We'll move ahead into verse 9 and see his defense. Paul begins to defend this point because it became even more clear in succeeding generations. That is, even more clear than Isaac and Ishmael. There could be reasons, for instance, why Ishmael, the son of an Egyptian servant, a handmaid to Sarah, Abraham's wife, there could be reasons why Ishmael might not inherit God's salvation. And so the, 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 the context is blurry. But when we move on to the next generation, and when we meet Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, we see something different. She was carrying twins. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, in other words, that's how salvation advances, she was told, quoting Genesis 25, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that is the hard statement that I mentioned earlier that finishes our passage today. But before we even try to hear the point, because it is startling when we see it from the page, before we can try to hear the point of these Old Testament passages they're making, Genesis 25, Malachi 1, and others, let's clear away the distraction that troubles us when we hear it. This word hatred that we encounter here in verse 13 isn't exactly what we first think when we hear it. But that's not because it changes definitions when it's used in a context like this. It's actually for a different reason, similar word, but used differently, and we need to hear that difference in order to appreciate what's being said. We believe we understand hatred. When we hate someone, it's often because we believe they hate us. We feel that from them. We feel their disapproval. They've treated us in certain ways. They, they, they flagrantly disrespected us, perhaps. Or, or elevated themselves above us as though they're far more important than we are. Like they're more noble or, or even more valuable somehow. Or want to be thought that way. So we hate them for all this. We wish they'd just disappear somehow. 
They cause great complication to our lives. We'd rather be without them. Even if it means their death. When we really hate somebody. We hate them and we feel very justified in our hatred. That's what we associate it with and that's a pretty ugly feeling. You wish it weren't that way and so how is it that you attribute that to God? It's a good question. The thing is, that's pretty much exactly what the word means right here as well. The difference is that it's a holy God, a morally perfect God, an entirely just God who's being described as having this disposition. He hates the sinful condition into which both Esau and Jacob will be born. Left to themselves, Jacob and Esau will, will flagrantly disrespect God. They will elevate themselves above him as though they are more important than he is. Likely even more noble, more valuable. That's how creatures relate to God and the very same things that cause us to hate people, God hates. And yet he hates it with a perfect hatred. A just hatred. A holy disapproval. So he hates them for all of this. And he makes them disappear in judgment. Even though this means their death. But he is entirely just in doing so. Stay with me though. We want him to be that way. We depend on him to be that way. We rely on him to be just that sort of holy and righteous and just God. There are two more key pieces here. Key pieces of information that help us put this into perspective that is, they're so important to hear. God's hatred is as pure and holy and morally perfect as his love. And we rely on the fact that his love will show itself in this judgment of the wicked. We rely on that. That's part of the love of God is that he will judge rebellion and sin. We long for his justice. That's one of the primary things for which we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, for the day of our redemption. It's part of what we're groaning for is justice. Our greater struggle is not with the judgment of God, the pouring out of his righteous wrath on rebellious wickedness in this world. Our greater struggle, even now, is with his delay. Why is he waiting so long to pour out his righteous hatred of sin? We are suffering under the absence of that in this world. We are suffering under the patience of God. As he, in his own words, says that he overlooks that, waiting for the appointed time, waiting for as many as will to trust 
and to savingly believe. Why does it seem like people just get away with things even we hate as we see them? How can God be patient with that? Well, there's part of his character. These are the hard parts for us. If there is no hatred of evil in God's heart, no judgment of those who willingly perpetrate evil in this world, then there's no justice at all in this world. And there's not even any hope of justice. That's a key piece to understand as we read this text. The final piece then is that even with all we've said so far, there's yet more context for grasping how this hatred works. It's not just that the hatred of God was upon Esau before he was born or had done anything good or bad. We, we hear that and that's what catches our ear. But we also need to recognize that the love of God was on Jacob before he was born and had done anything either good or bad. God made a choice based on the fulfillment of his own purpose and he chose the younger ahead of the older knowing which would be which even before they were born, by the way. There's a little glimpse into the knowledge and the heart of God. So if we could charge God with anything here, it wouldn't be with playing favorites. He chose the one according to his own purpose before either of them either existed, even existed, and had done anything good or bad to earn his favor or disfavor. God made his choice. God is in charge. He's in control of this world and of what he does within it. Right on down to and including the selection of the one who will receive his blessing. God wasn't playing favorites any more than we are when someone puts their hands behind their back and tells us to choose left or right. We make a choice. God chose according to his own purpose the one through whom he would provide salvation into which one's line would the Christ be born? There's the selection that was being made. Into which one's line would he provide, through which would he provide salvation for all those he chooses to be recipients of it in the very same way? That choosing, that election is here called love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the love of God, this favoring of salvation. And the judgment that remains on those not chosen is called hatred. That's hard for us. But my friends, what is tempting to each of us is somehow in the midst of this to pretend that our hearts are more compassionate than God's. As though the fact that he has chosen some to be recipients and even explains in the second half of this letter, what if God chose certain objects for wrath in order to set the context to understand the blessing that he had provided to all? All were alike under sin. 
But God in his sovereign grace has selected some to receive salvation in order to know the greatness of the glory and the power of God. Does God not have the freedom to do that? Well, that stretches our understanding. It really does. But the thing we need to avoid is to think that we could ever be in the place of saying we understand compassion and mercy on a level that God doesn't. That's essentially the question that will come to us in next week's passage. Who are you all man to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? It's not sarcastic. It's helping us put into perspective the fact that God isn't just a great big one of us. He's entirely other. And he does all things well. Do you believe that? That's what Paul's writing about here. The judgment that remains on those who are not chosen is called hatred, but this is the core point that ensures that God's salvation is in no sense based on human works. We love to recite that. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, not by works so that no one will boast. But this is the doctrine that lays the foundation for that. And if we lose it, we've lost salvation by grace alone. That's the point Paul makes here. Do you see it in verse 11? As he put it here, in order that God's purpose in election might continue... Namely, not because of works, but because of him who calls. If salvation is not by the Lord, then it's not by grace alone. If it is holy by God, then we have a system in which human works do not factor in. And that's the very thing that's being protected by the way that God has done it here. Salvation is holy of the Lord. Is that good news? It is good news. So our question is, as we close this morning, can we trust him with that? That's a question I would love to have the time to look into each one of your eyes individually and ask you personally. Can you trust God with this? Because this is who God is. Do you trust him with this? Would we really want our salvation to be in our own hands in any sense? More than in God's? Do we really believe that in any sense we would be better off if any portion of our salvation were dependent upon us? If so, we have far too high a view of fallen humanity. Surely, this is a hard doctrine for prideful human beings to grasp. But even so, I think we'd agree that we are far better off if God's salvation is wholly provided by him such that it doesn't depend in any way at all on us. Because if it did, we would surely mess it up. And if we think we wouldn't, We haven't understood the depth of our sin. Thank God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, chief among them being the salvation that he has provided through faith in Christ. Amen? Let's pray now and celebrate that 
saving grace in remembering the body and blood of the Lord. As we pray, as I pray, please join me at the front, musicians and those serving communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We have only begun now in this profoundly important section of this profoundly important letter in this infinitely important book. Help us, Lord God, to hear and to understand the nature of our salvation, the nature of our God who saves us, and to see as compassion and mercy the very disposition of God toward his creatures in every respect, and where we are tempted to think that we understand the morality of a matter better than you do. Father, I pray that you would use circumstances in our own lives to bring into check our understanding of who we are and of who you are. That, Father, is a great mercy. If we can grow in the very humility that you displayed as you provided a sacrifice for our sins, then, Lord God, we are beginning to know you on a new and fresh and deep level. Well, Father, help us even now, this day, as we remember the body and blood of the Lord, to grow in just that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.